Now, I'm not sure who in their wisdom decided to go through the book of Titus, but uh, last Sunday evening was a much easier subject than the one we're looking at this evening. I have never ever in my life before, and that's 45 years preaching the word, ever done a study on this section we're looking at this evening. So I tell you, my friends, it's straight from the oven into my heart to you, dear friends, in Fernie Lee. So let's enjoy it together, shall we? But to get the context, we're going to read the entire chapter of Titus and chapter 1. So turning for our study to Titus and the first chapter. We begin there in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, a husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, a quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And here's a section for this evening. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And there we finish at what is the end of a very, very interesting opening chapter of three, sent to our friend Titus. So this evening, dear friends, we're turning for a few minutes back again to Titus in chapter one. And I think from reading between the lines, this is number three 
in your series on this very special pastoral epistle. It was penned by Paul, and it was written especially to one whom he calls, in verse 4, my true son in our common faith. Now, to this young man, Titus, do you see what Paul is doing? He offers him the rich twin blessings of grace and peace. Now, bearing in mind the task that awaited Titus in the island of Crete, and that's spelled out quite clearly down there in verse 5, it just seems to me that Titus would need both blessings, not in spoonfuls, but rather in shovelfuls, grace and peace. What was Titus meant to do? Well, Titus was meant to take the proverbial bull by the horns. And he was, in the words of Paul, down there in chapter 1, to straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. And my dear friends, if you've ever been to Crete, it ain't that big. But back there and back then, this was a mammoth task by any stretch of the imagination. And so in verses 6 through 9, which you covered last Lord's Day evening, we have some very clear guidelines, don't we? As to what an elder looks like and as to what an elder does at the same time. It's a very, very challenging list, isn't it? Very, very challenging. But you know, if you and I are to know God's blessing on our local assembly, then we have to tick all the boxes that we have in verses 6 through 9. And it's only when we tick the boxes outlined there that we will experience and enjoy the rich, abundant blessing of God. Because those who are called to be elders in a local assembly, they're called to fulfill a privileged role indeed. And then, the first word you have down there in verse 10 gives the game away, doesn't it? It is the word in the NIV, it is the word for. Now, you can see the connection, can't you? That's why we read the entire chapter through a few minutes ago. Paul is saying something just like this. Titus, this is what I want you to do in the churches on the island of Crete. For. Dot, dot, dot. And then he spells out the reason why his ministry to these dear people will be hugely and immensely significant. Now, we'll talk more about it in a minute or two. But if you read what you have down there in verse 10 and verse 11, it's ever so clear, is it not? These guys have a major problem on their hands. And it's one we say dare not sweep under the carpet. Or even one which they cannot afford to turn a blind eye to. It's something that has to be dealt with. It's something that has to be sorted out once and for all. And again, reading what Paul says right here in a, in a handful of verses, it just seems to me that false teachers are like Rottweilers. They must be muzzled. And that's what Paul says down there in verse 11, isn't it? And quite frankly, the apostle doesn't mince his words. Now, the truth of the matter is this. That false teaching was rife in the early church, in that pilgrim church. Hence Paul's warning elsewhere in scripture. For example, the churches in Ephesus and the church in Corinth. You can read what he says in Acts chapter 20 and again 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then elsewhere, Paul lays it on the line, doesn't he? In his comments to the church 
in Colossae, and then to the believers way up there in northern Greece in the city of Salonika. That's only a handful, but there are many other references to it. And on more than one occasion, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he came down on false teachers like a ton of bricks, didn't he? You remember he said in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And then further on in Mark 13, 22 to 23, he speaks of these cuckoos in the nest, doesn't he? And he says about them, they will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive. And then, if that ain't bad enough, remember that we walk through the seven churches in Asia, and to some of them, he is less than happy with their antics, and he roundly and flatly condemns them. Paul also left young Timothy in no doubt. As to the seriousness of the prevailing situation, he addressed the matter in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and again 2 Timothy chapter 3. And you know, no matter where you read, no matter where you look, Paul's description of these con men is robust. It's always clear. It's always concise. And his punchline is summed up in four words, from such turn away. In other words, do what Joseph did back in the Old Testament. Run a mile from these characters. Now Peter, never one to be left hanging behind. He was on the bandwagon too, wasn't he? You remember Peter wrote what he did in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, about these insidious individuals, men who were only interested in lining their own pockets, fleecing the flock at the expense of God's dear people. But there's another, not surprisingly, John. Remember, John is often portrayed as the beloved apostle. He's got a fair bit to say, doesn't he? When he talks about the scourge, he refers to these guys for what they really are. He says these men, they're antichrist in their thinking and they're antichrist in their theology. You can read all about it, 1 John 2. And again over the page in 1 John chapter 4. But you know, he also briefly mentions them in his second epistle in verse 7. And I dare not miss out my friend Jude. He was on the ball, wasn't he? When he talks about them in that single chapter letter, Jude calls a spade. A spade. And you see what he says down there in verses 3 and 4. Then away down the page in verses 17 to 19. Jude, bless him, he goes after these guys, as we would say, hammer and tongs. And he leaves you and I in absolutely no doubt as to what he thinks of them. Jude's assessment of these men is brutally honest. And this is how he summarizes them quite succinctly. He says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Holy Spirit. In other words, they are what I would call synthetic sins. Now, if false teaching was rife way back there in the early church, what about today? Well, my friends, in 2021, all around the world, false teaching is not only rife, but rather it has moved up a gear and today it is rampant. 
And that is no exaggeration. I mean, you will know examples as well as I do. I could stand here this evening and cite many different examples, but there's no point in doing that, is there? Let me simply say this. The National Church in both Scotland and England, along with the Methodist Conference, they don't cover themselves in glory. When it comes to serious, serious doctrinal error in their midst. And that's the kind of people Paul is writing to Titus about. That's what makes the message of Titus chapter 1, dear friends, so up to date, so pertinent, so relevant. And for you and I who are gathered here this evening, and a thrilling to see so many of you this evening, we who love the Lord Jesus. Do you know what? We have a solemn and a sober responsibility resting on our shoulders to do what? To root out such men and women from our meetings. And if you and I find ourselves in a position of leadership in a local assembly, if we're there as elders, then we certainly can't opt out of dealing with the issues at hand. May I put it like this? As gospel people, it is your job and mine to take to heart what Paul said to Timothy. We are called to guard the gospel. Now, let me put it like this. God has called us to a ministry of reconciliation. That is true. But it's also called us in light of Titus 1 to a ministry of rebuke. He has called you and I in the fellowship of God's family to a ministry of comfort. That is true. But he's also called us to a ministry of confrontation. And that's the focus of these few verses at the end of chapter 1. Rebuke and confrontation. My dear friends, this is eyeball to eyeball stuff. Now did you notice Paul describes them down here in a threefold manner. They all begin with the letter D, so they're easy to remember. Number one, they are divisive. Number two, they are deceived. Number three, they are defiled. So, number one. If you cast your eye down there in chapter 1 to verse 10 and verse 11, we must confront the divisive. We must confront the divisive. Now, I think it's fair to say that these malicious people who peddle the truth are probably nice enough kind of blokes. No doubt they're very personable, and very persuasive. No doubt there's something attractive about them and they're certainly highly ambitious. And so often what these individuals teach has just enough truth in it to deceive those who are young and perhaps immature in their faith. But what they teach also comes with enough candy-coated cleverness to fool those who are gullible in the local assembly. And that's the reason why, dear friends, we dare not take such people at face value. We need to dig down deeper. We need to. We need to shine the torchlight, as it were, to uncover their pernicious ways. We need to conduct, if you like, a closer and more careful analysis. And you say to me this evening, okay, Sam, that's fine. But why such a painstaking examination? Well, 
so as to unearth the malignant disease that is under the surface of their deadly doctrine. And when you and I begin to scrape away what is visible to every one of us, what do we find? Take a look at verse 10. They are destitute in how they talk. They're destitute in how they talk. You know, I think it's very interesting to notice here, it's scary as well, that there were obviously more than one or two of these charlatans on the island of Crete. Paul says there are many rebellious people. And the chances are that some of these guys will have risen to positions of leadership in local assemblies of God's people. And you know, Paul doesn't do them any favours when he says they are rebellious people. What does it mean? It means they are insubordinate. Quite frankly, that speaks of their attitude. I make no apologies for saying this evening, when it comes to their attitude, it stinks. And it does. For these dear people back there and then, they were a law unto themselves. These men were claiming they had a direct hotline to God above. In other words, when they stood up before the people in the congregation, what they said, they said, was coming straight from that higher throne. And that's the line they always took. No one dared talk back to them. Their message was direct from God. No one dare question them at all. The baseline is no one, and I mean no one, would tell these guys what to do. These men are rebellious in the sense that they're not prepared to be accountable to anyone. And my friends, that's always a telltale sign of a false teacher. A lack of accountability and a lack of of transparency. Now that is bad enough, isn't it? But Paul didn't stop there. He goes on to speak of them as mere talkers. And the thought behind that is, it is idle talkers. If the first comment referred to their attitude, and it did, the second comment here is a reference to their actions. These guys were consumed with a sense of self-importance. These guys, when they stood before the people, they were on the kind of an ego trip. These men actually fancied themselves and they believed that they were God's gift to the local assembly in wherever on the island of Crete. But look, folks, when their teaching was unpacked, they didn't really say that much, did they? I mean, it was empty. It was useless words. I borrowed the phrase from the epistle of Jude. These guys were like clouds without water. Oh, they're fluent, there's no doubt about that. And they can hold your attention, there's no doubt about that. But they're shallow. Oh, they're slick. Sure they are. But they're also smooth. And for these men back there and then, and the same is true today, the Bible is a resource for their teaching. Sure it is, but it's not the source of their teaching. These guys are what I would call candy floss preachers. They're all show, but there's nothing to show for it. There's a total lack of substance. 
And let's see what Paul goes on to talk about them down there in verse 10 and in verse 11. He says they're dangerous in what they think. Well, he labelled them down here, didn't he, in the middle of verse 10, as being deceivers. In other words, they are deluding themselves. As well as, much more seriously, they're pulling the wool over the eyes of others in the local assembly. These men, we could call them spiritual seducers. These guys actually, they disguise their personal ambition to be top dog, along with their own agenda, but they have it so cunningly and cleverly disguised in the trappings of what we would call religious piety and prosperity. And mention prosperity, that name ought to ring a bell with you when it comes to false teaching. And so in that sense, one look at them. And what you see is not always what you get. See what Paul is doing? He singles out a cluster of people here that were causing problems in the churches in the island of Crete. And he says they're, they're branded down here at the end of verse 10 as the circumcision group. The circumcision group. Now that ought to give you a bit of an idea, a clear idea as to the kind of stuff these fellows are promoting. They were Judaizers. We could say about them, they were guilty of theological pornography. These men proffered a Jesus plus theology, which is always a minus Jesus theology. The fact of the matter is, add to Christ, and you actually subtract from Christ. Beloved friends, the impact of such erroneous teaching. It must never, ever be laughed at. It must never, ever be made light of. You and I must never, ever downplay it. The influence of these false teachers is quite extensive. And Paul lays it on the line down there, doesn't he, in verse 10 and verse 11. Did you notice what he says? You see the harm they're doing? And Paul says they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Well, that could mean families, but it could also mean the church in your house. And that's the double idea behind it as well. So these truth twisters, they were causing mayhem among the people of God. I mean, like a fast-spreading cancer. They don't only infect one. And that is bad enough. That is serious enough. But they actually infect many, many more. And that will give you some idea as to how effective a false teacher can be. You know, my friends, it was true back then. <coughs> Otherwise, Paul would not have said what he said. But it's no less true today in 2021. Propagators of a man-centered message and a me-focused gospel, what do they do? They turn the spotlight glaringly on themselves. They deflect your focus and mine away from the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has achieved and accomplished. The beauty and the greatness of Jesus is at best ignored by these guys and at worst denied. That's the kind of people we're talking about here when we talk about false teachers. And then look down there in verse 11. They're also dishonest in why they teach. 
They're dishonest in why they teach. Now, again, Paul, he pulls no punches here, does he? I mean, this guy's batting on the front foot, as we sometimes say. He launches an all-out assault on these seamy characters, doesn't he? He uses strong language when he says, they must be silenced. And that's why I made the comment a few minutes ago, like a Rottweiler, they ought to be muzzled. These false teachers, they've got to be stopped in their tracks. Shut up. Their voices should no longer be heard. And these guys should no longer be seen. My friends, we need to guide them. And we need, quite frankly, to get rid of them. Simple as that. We confront them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our primary weapon. We confront them with the real results of their activity. Because these guys are not building up. These guys are wreckers. And we confront them, says Paul here in verse 11, with their motive for ministry. They do it, says Paul, for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, we know what that means, don't we? These fellows are in it for, quite frankly, what they can get out of it. They can see the dollar signs flashing, and apologies to my American friends, but they can see the dollar signs flashing in front of their two eyes. These fellows are no better. They're a bunch of ministerial mercenaries. They're hard guns. That's exactly what they are. They're people who were motivated by money. And it seems to me, dear friends, that we see evidence of that down the course and through the annals of church history. False teachers love money. False teachers crave money. And false teachers will talk an awful lot about money. Let me give you one example you've probably heard of. He was in Glasgow two or three years ago. Such is the mindset of the likes of a fellow, probably inappropriately with a surname, of Creflo Dollar. He's the founder and pastor of a church in Atlanta, Georgia, the World Changers Church. He said, you're a fool for Christ, so you might as well be a rich fool. False teacher, spelt in big capital letters. In it for money. But the second main point is found in verse 12, 13 and 14. So we must confront the deceived. We must confront the deceived. And again, you've got to admire dear Paul here. I mean, his words are strong, aren't they? They're certainly straight to the point. Paul doesn't miss these guys and hit the wall. Never. But they're also strategic in what he says and extremely difficult to refute. The question is, beloved friends, why does Paul employ such tactics? Well, the answer is obvious. It's because the spiritual danger is so acute. So what does Paul do? He goes for the jugular when he exposes these spiritual imposters. Now, a careful study, if any, false teacher will bring to light a person in their true colours. I mean, we'll see them, to quote Cromwell, warts and all. And for you and for me, we have to take the time. We have to listen with both ears open wide. We have to weigh what we hear on the scales of God's perfect word. It's what I would call, from Acts seventeen eleven, the Berean Syndrome. 
The word of God is our sole plumb line. It's her only standard of measurement. The question we ask when we listen to these individuals or we read about them or we bump into them, wherever they happen to be, the question is, what do the scriptures say? Did you notice when we read it earlier? Very interesting to discover that Paul calls upon one of their own heroes from a bygone era. A guy from the 6th century BC, a fellow called Epimenides. Now, to people around that era, he was a poet, a priest, and a prophet. So he takes all the boxes, doesn't he, when it comes to pedigree. In fact, this particular fellow, Epimenides, was actually considered to be one of the seven great wise men of Greece. And what did he say? You have it down there, don't you? In the end of verse 12, he said, Cretans are always liars, comma, evil brutes, comma, and lazy gluttons, full stop. I tell you, folks, <laughs> that's some statement for any man to make, isn't it? Especially if it's about your own. I mean, what a caustic assessment of these false teachers. I mean, as a one-liner. It's, it's cutting, isn't it? But it's also condemning in equal measure. I, I, I just love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, the paragraph, the paraphrase. He puts it like this. He says, Cretans are liars from the womb. They are barking dogs and are lazy bellies. Now, whether you like Peterson or Epimenides, I can tell you, beloved friends, None of them are paying these guys a compliment. Far from it. So let's unpack it, shall we? One line at a time. We read down there in verse 12, the people in Crete are always liars. So these guys are not only living a lie, they're also talking a lie. And you see, this was a hallmark of those who lived in that particular island. Their teaching sounded biblical, but it wasn't actually in the Bible. These guys were guilty of trafficking the truth. And for them, it was a rationale which said something like this. In life and in ministry, it's anything but the pure truth. And the bottom line, my friend, is this. You can't trust such teachers. They lie to themselves. And you know, they will lie to you. And they'll certainly lie to me. So many people have been distracted and divided, and even destroyed by the influence of these individuals, all because they drape their lives in the beautiful robes of gospel truth. They're liars. But then he goes on to say about them, they're also evil brutes. Well, he's referring here to people who live their lives on a sensual plane. Men and women who were controlled by their passions and their appetites, They've got a one-track mind that is guided and fueled by their lust and their desires. These men are brute beasts. Jude says something similar, doesn't he? They are untamable and they're certainly uncontrollable. These guys could not be reined in at all. To put it very simply, they're not the nicest of people to be around any length of time. And bearing in mind what Paul says down here, they're brutish and bestial in their behaviour. 
In other words, these fellows do what comes naturally. When they tear apart and they rip to shreds those vulnerable people in any congregation, basically, they're not in the least bit concerned about you or me. And they've no interest in your spiritual welfare at all. These guys are totally immersed in the three most important people in their lives. Me, myself, and I. So they're, they're liars, they're brutes, and the third thing we read about them here, they are lazy gluttons. Well, that hints at their self-indulgence, doesn't it? It certainly highlights something of their self-discipline, their lack of it, but also their lack of self-control. To put it very mildly, as Jesus said, these wolves in sheep's clothing, they feed and they feast at the expense of others. These people are scamming the people of God. They're teaching a mixture of truth and error. These counterfeit teachers, they hide their deceptions behind stained glass smiles and pious promises. That's the kind of people we're talking about here, isn't it? That gives you some idea as to what Paul thinks about these individuals. My friends, no wonder Paul warned Titus about them. No wonder. These pretenders, they need to be unmasked. But then Paul also adds fuel to the fire, doesn't he? When he says down there at the beginning of verse 13. And a kind of a, a kind of a footnote that this testimony from one of your own is absolutely true. Okay. So Paul's solution to the situation, what is it? Two strands to it. Number one. That's to the point. It's always got to be to the point. And then number two, it is also pastoral. And you see that wonderful balance there and how we engage in the ministry of confrontation and how we deal with this tricky and thorny problem. And in light of all that Paul is saying, he said, this is how I want you to proceed. I want you to rebuke them sharply. So Paul is firm. He's resolute in what he says. You see, friends, the church leaders at this point, there and then, they've been quite lax, they've been hesitant in dealing with the crisis that was prevailing in their midst. They've dragged their feet. Well, quite honestly, they should have been banging heads together. It's got the idea of a surgeon removing tissue that is diseased and infectious. No half measures. And so it is with them. They have to cut away this toxic teaching. It has to be totally eradicated. And it's worth keeping in the front of your mind. This challenge is in the present tense. In other words, the problem won't be solved overnight. Elders in 2021, under shepherds of God's flock, even today, have to be in it for the long haul. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What is our goal in performing the spiritual surgery? Well, it is pastoral. No doubt there. It is redemptive. It is, as Paul says himself, so that those who are deceived in deceiving others may be sound in the faith. In other words, we cut to cure. So we operate to liberate those who were trapped in the quicksand of spiritual bondage. We confront and we're firm. But we do it 
in love. We love them enough to point out their error with the hope that it will ultimately lead them to a place of recovery, a place of spiritual health and vitality. You see, Paul clearly saw, didn't he, the gangrene of Jewish myths. That's what he talks about there, isn't it, in verse 14? He was aware of the long list, never-ending, of man-made rules. Just turn people away from the plain truth of Scripture. You see, most of this stuff is man-centred rather than God-centred. These things that Paul is talking about here, they, they go beyond or even against the grain of Scripture. And Paul says they have to be dealt with. We call a spade a spade when it comes to such lies being peddled. The apostle then refers to those who reject the truth. Our friends, that is nothing short of tragic. It's tragic. Once they knew it, now they deny it. Once they lived it, now they leave it. That's how bad it is. And that's what only serves to make them all the more dangerous. Hence the need to take on board the teaching of Titus 1. And then the final couple of verses down there. We must confront the defiled. Third point, we must confront the defiled. And yet again, we're reminded, aren't we, that uh, belief and behaviour go together. Sound doctrine, good works, are twin companions on the highway of life. You know the problem is, dear friends, false teaching contaminates. It defiles whatever it touches. It only takes a small drop of poison to pollute something which originally was clean and pure. And that's the issue that Paul is talking about here, isn't it? So the question is, why must we confront the defiled? Two reasons, okay? Number one, in verse 15, because they lack purity. You've got that little phrase in there, to the pure, all things are pure. Now that's, that's a pithy saying, that's one we've often heard and perhaps even used, a kind of a proverb. What does it mean? Well, it's a test of moral character, isn't it? It echoes the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark 7, 15 to 23, where he talks about what does and what doesn't defile an individual. And so in contrast to the pure in heart and the pure in mind, those who are corrupted, those who do not believe, are said to be what? Impure. They are defiled. They are polluted. Their inner self is seriously corroded because of the disease of sin. I know it's hard going for Sunday night, but that's what the theologians would call total depravity. See, when a person is pure in heart and pure in mind, his perspective and all things are pure. And that inside purity, what does it produce? Outward purity. But the reverse is also true, isn't it? When that individual is impure in their thinking and in their actions, it colours everything they do. It tarnishes everything they do. Impurity on the inside produces impurity on the outside. That's why they have to be dealt with. Because they lack purity. And then in verse 16, they've got to be dealt with because they lie in their profession. You know, I think this is quite fascinating down there in verse 16. 
You see, the mind and the conscience are connected to a vital organ in the human body. You know what it is? It's the tongue. And our friend James has an awful lot to say about that, doesn't he? You see, how you think will give way to how you speak. True. Lie to yourself and you lie to others. Lie to yourself and you lie about God. I mean, it really is as straightforward as that. You see what Paul observes down here in verse 16? They claim to know God. Sure. But in the things that they do day after day, they actually deny God. These are men who are trusting in their own works. Men who are trusting in their own wisdom. Men who are dependent on their own righteousness. And their lives deny the God they say they know. These guys are deluded. Full stop. You see how Paul rounds the chapter off? With quite a sensational trio of words. It describes their behaviour. Number one, they are detestable. He used the word abominable as well, doesn't he, elsewhere? This is God's attitude towards all things idolatrous. It's an abomination to him. And secondly, they are disobedient. We talked about that earlier. Rebellious, insubordinate. They will do it their way. And thirdly, they are disqualified. That is, they're not fit for purpose. They are unfit for gospel ministry. These guys are worthless. And such men says the beloved Apostle Paul are spurious. They're fake. They're counterfeit. They're not real. They're not genuine at all. Put these guys and their teaching to the test of Scripture and they fail every single time. I say this in closing, dear friends. It just seems to me that the ministry of rebuke and confrontation is not an easy ministry for you and I to be involved in. Far from it. Far from it. But it's something, especially in these times in which we live, that is absolutely vital and essential. This is God's way to deal with the situation. You see, friends, when the integrity of the gospel is at stake, you and I, We can't bury our heads in the sand. We can't run and hide. We've got to stand up and be counted and fight the good fight of faith. And so armed with truth, motivated by love and clothed with a pure life, we can then engage the enemy and potentially rescue the captive. Recognising, as dear friend Jude teaches us, that we are to snatch them from the fire, hating even the garment stained by corrupted flesh. He say this, and then I'm done. Truth matters. Truth matters. The gospel matters. The person and work of Jesus Christ matters. The reality of heaven and hell matters. The purity of the church matters. The integrity of God's people matters. The glory of God matters. And the list goes on and on and on. 
and the timely message from the Lord Jesus to your heart and mine this evening is this, John 8, 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There are men today in ministry and in assemblies all around the world who need to be muzzled. The truth will win. May God grant it.